we're getting better as a healthcare system, but it's still fairly disjointed. And so we have a lot of siloed care that handoff uh, for some very complex patients that we have, everyone has in the United States around the whole world. That can kind of be a barrier where we want to make sure we have all the right information for that patient to kind of excel and maximize their outcome. Hello, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of Be Advised, the Mary Freebed Advisory Group podcast, where today we'll be meeting with Dr. Ralph Wong, one of Mary Freebed's physiatrists. My name is Joelle Pavey, and I serve as the Vice President of the Mary Freebed Advisory Group, and I'm also the host of today's podcast. Our co-hosts and co-advisors today are Janice Ramsey and Sherry Mullins, who serve as Regional Directors of Care Transitions. Dr. Wong, thank you so much for joining us today. You have been such a huge support of the advisory group since our inception, and I couldn't be happier to have you share your expertise with our audience today. Dr. Wong, tell us a little bit about your background and your role at Mary Freebed. Sure. I've been at Mary Freebed for about two and a half years now, and uh, originally from Chicago. So uh, uh, my family, we moved here because my wife's family's here from Grand Rapids, so that was sort of the main motivation. Uh, but of course, it's been just uh, wonderful to be here the last two and a half years. And uh, I think I did a lot of my training uh, in Houston at Tier, in addition to spending a lot of time at Northwestern and Shirley Ryan. Uh, that was my first job after residency. And then my most recent uh, job was with U.S. Physiatry, which is a national physiatry company. Um, and mostly uh, with them, I was their, their medical director in Illinois, in addition to uh, being a rehab medical director at Subacute. So uh, before at Mary Freebed, I was uh, more in the Subacute space, but right now more in acute rehab. Uh, currently at uh, Mary Freebed, I mostly work with adults and mostly focus on our medically complex patients. And a lot of that will be our more severe cases of COVID. Uh, but also, uh, we do have uh, patients on ventilators, and so I work with them, uh, trying to get them home, either off the ventilator or with the ventilator, and a lot of our organ, uh, new organ transplant patients. You've been around the block, so to speak, right? You've been um, in a lot of different roles. Why did you choose phys physical medicine and rehab? Uh, I think initially when I was in med school, and even uh, before med school, I thought a lot about family family practice, and I kind of like the holistic nature of family medicine. Then I was in med school, and uh, I was at med school at Northwestern University, so we had tons of exposure, because that's Shirley Ryan's sort of academic counterpart. Uh, rehab or physiatry was a required rotation, so when I got uh, kind of exposed to physiatry, I kind of learned that I even liked rehab more than family practice. So. I do like the kind of holistic nature rehab where we're looking at the whole patient. And so that appealed to me. And then I also like rehab's team approach where we're working with all the different therapy disciplines and nursing and psychology. Uh, so those things really appeal to me about physiatry. That's great. I think you and I have a little bit in common there with the functional aspect, me being an OT and the holistic approach to things. COVID-19 caused a lot of challenges. Outside of that, because we'll talk about COVID in a minute, what is the biggest challenge you feel physiatrists face today or physicians in general face today? You know, a lot of people think doctors and they think medicine and, and clinical things and like surgery, but at least for me and probably a lot of doctors, it's probably some of the psychosocial aspects of medicine. A lot of it is structural, like whether or not having insurance or maybe having uh, like a severe psych psychiatric issues like bipolar. And, and so there, 
there's not really great algorithms as physicians to treat that, but it really impacts care even more than like blood pressure sometimes or heart disease when a patient doesn't have a social support or you know doesn't take their compliance or medication. So at least in physiatry, and I think for a lot of doctors, that psychosocial aspect is, is really challenging to address. And there's such a tremendous pressure that hinges on discharge location for patients, and we certainly know those social factors are really impacting being able to discharge the patient and get them to the next appropriate level of care. So I can certainly appreciate that from a clinical standpoint. So you talked about the social aspects and we kind of just discussed a little bit how it impacts care transitions, but what other obstacles do you see currently right now um, transitioning patients to the next level of care, particularly now that COVID-19 has kind of taken over our our day-to-day lives here at the hospital? Sure, I think, um, and it's it's really very common in literature is with these transitions is kind of the handoff, especially the clinical handoff where the medications are leaving is the new medications they are with the next facility or the lab work or clinical issues. And so I think, you know, we're getting better as a healthcare system, but it's still fairly disjointed. And so we have a lot of siloed care. And so that handoff uh, from for some very complex patients that we have, everyone has in the United States, around the whole world, uh, that can kind of be a barrier where we want to make sure we have all the right information for that patient to kind of excel and maximize their outcome. That's certainly a, a challenge. Uh, you know, I was hoping with some of the new interoperability standards coming out that that information on, regarding patients, prior hospital setting, that we'd get more and more information as those standards evolve. Um, but it's certainly been a challenge in COVID, especially when we have to limit visitors and family members from participating, coming into family trainings or things that we typically think about um, at rehab. So tell me, where else do you see gaps in the care continuum today, and how can these gaps be prevented? So I think like sort of related to transitions is the silos of care. They're needed because patients are more complicated and really ultimately they were kind of determined by Medicare in particular subacute rehab, acute rehab and LTACs, long-term acute care hospitals. I've always felt and I think this was more popular maybe 10 or 15 years ago with the continuing care rehab hospital where especially after leaving a medical hospital, instead of like three or four or five silos, maybe it's just one silo or two where the subacute uh, rehab, acute rehab or LTAC is just one level of care. So you're not moving between two or three places. You just stay in one place. Now it's going to be longer. Maybe instead of 10 days, it'll be 30 days. But every time we transition, we lose progress because you're getting a new team. And that's where mistakes happen. I mean, we don't like to think like we, we make mistakes, but it's but it is human. So even if it's one out of 100 times, uh, multiply that by a million, that's 10,000 times. And so if I think if there were less silos, less transitions, that would be better. And, and that might just mean uh, less teams involved, less people involved. And that's why in the U.S. healthcare system, the primary care physician is so important because they're actually that critical link uh, between all the silos of care. That's a really excellent point, something I certainly haven't necessarily thought about. I know some of the value-based payment programs are really talking about second site of care, but didn't really frame it in the same context that you just did, that every time there's a care transition, information could get lost. Um, Critical information you need to care for a patient um, might be missed or mistakes could happen. So I think that's really incredible insight. You're listening to the Be Advised podcast. If you'd like more information, please email us at advisorygroup at maryfreebed.com. 
Here's Janice Ramsey, Regional Director of Network Care Transitions, with our next question. We keep talking about value-based programming, and you talked about silos, and that was a big push for value-based programs. They were going to break down those silos, make people start to talk more. So what role do you see a PMR, PMR really playing in that move towards more value-based programming and value-based care? Yeah, I think at this point, since these silos exist, it is what it is, and it it will be what it is probably for the next 10, 15 years as we try to improve the healthcare system. So I think as physiatrists, I think we're probably experts in those silos of care, the difference between subacute and LTAC and acute. And so a lot of times we're involved in the, what most people think, you know, the medical hospital, the conventional hospital, we get involved to determine which level of care, which silo is most appropriate for this patient. So what's the best value? What's the best outcome? What is going to meet the patient's needs the best? So I think for the acute doctors and team to get us involved early so we can help uh, not only make that de- determination, but also educate the family so things you know go smoothly. And a lot of times we are usually on the receiving end. We're in SAR, LTAC, or acute rehab, so usually we'll come to our service. And so having met the patient and understand the clinical issues, we can kind of shepherd that transition to make sure that you know there's minimal mistakes in addition to being with the family and counseling them in that transition. When patients are in the acute care setting, they need to be able to know what resources are there. You know, what's the next level of care? So as a PMR physician, you know, how do we really look at, how do you really look at how you best advocate for patients to get them the resources that they need to get that optimal function for them? So again, educating the family is very important. Depending on the family, sometimes they want to go home immediately too soon, and sometimes they want to stay too long, and they don't feel like they're ready to go home. But so it's our kind of role as sort of the physician coach and counselor to kind of, and the families to kind of educate them on, you know, when is they ready to go home, and, and when, when does the family take over that nursing care and some of the therapy care. And that's one way we kind of help with the barriers, with, you know, kind of education and counseling. And then really just kind of uh, maximizing our team. So we have, at least on the therapy side, you know, we have all the different type of therapists. So a lot of people in the lay press might think it's just one type, but no, there's, you know, four or five actually. And, and which therapy is most appropriate? When do we need psychology? How do we kind of leverage our social workers' knowledge and equipment and, uh, and all those type of things to, you know, get the patient home safely and, and effectively? Yeah, and as someone that's, as Joyelle mentioned too, someone's been value-based care for quite a few years, that's that's the big thing is having physicians on the front end really educate the patients on what they're going to need because you know they get home and they're like now what do I need? So having that that front end education from a f- physiatrist standpoint really helps and gets these patients where they need to go. I always feel like the education actually really should start and even before they get to rehab, so then patients are, are and families are ready and don't feel surprised and caught off guard when they have to go home. You are listening to Be Advice, our Mary for Bed Advisory Group podcast. Here's Sherry Mullins, Regional Director of Network Care Transitions, with our next question. Earlier, you talked a little bit about treating COVID patients in the rehab setting. I understand that you were pretty instrumental in setting up the COVID recovery unit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Gosh, and I, I kind of lament that we we are still you know having a bring the unit up every now and then when we have these waves. And so uh, so the unit started in, gosh, I think really still the first wave in Michigan was in the middle of that first wave in our country. So that was about April. And so what it is, is really it's a unit. It's kind of a hospital within a hospital where these patients are very contagious, especially early on. We, we weren't 
really sure about you know what we should be wearing and, and you know when we should be masking what kind of mask and everything so we thought the safest way is to rehab these patients so they're not giving to the staff and even worse to other patients is to create a unit where there's a gym everyone is just wearing uh, PPE personal protective equipment for these COVID patients and so our unit now and in the past you know it can vary in size depending on the needs in our community kind of fascinating we can we actually build walls so it it has its own entrance and and uh, we are able to build walls and move that wall depending on the volume of COVID we have in our community. I think early on, certainly, I did. I had to learn a lot about the disease itself, uh, medically and from a functional standpoint, and then educate the uh, rest of the staff and, and even the healthcare system um, about COVID. And then also a lot of it is administrative as far as uh, getting the right amount of therapy, when they can go home, when families can visit, the size of the unit, and all those dip- uh, different type of things uh, for those patients. Wow. When you talk about the functional and medical impact of COVID, what were, what are you seeing out there in terms of that? Usually when I think of COVID, and unfortunately it does affect almost every organ system, but the major two is neurologic and, or actually three, cardiopulmonary, because that would technically be two, heart and lung. So from a neurologic standpoint, uh, we do see uh, really, and from a lay lay term, it's it's brain damage. So uh, we see patients with confusion, sometimes permanent confusion from COVID. In addition to the brain, um, people get depressed and anxious. So not only because they have COVID, but it actually changes your your serotonin levels most likely. And so people have, you know, separate emotional issues from COVID. So aside, on top of the kind of neurologic, uh, the other thing we do see is cardiopulmonary. And so patients have get really fast heart rates or they have trouble breathing, they need oxygen. And the most severe cases, we do see permanent lung scarring. Uh, and those cardiopulmonary issues then kind of present practically from a therapy standpoint as just profound fatigue and limited endurance. And so that can limit, you know, how far they can walk, if they can walk and get out of bed, those type of things. So with that said, is there an insight where they eventually get recovered from that? Or are you seeing that it'll take a year more than that to recover from that? That's a great question. And, and especially since the COVID kind of keep keeps mutating, the disease itself kind of changes slightly. Uh, but I do think the vast majority do recover, recover 100%. In fact, a lot are asymptomatic. But I think from sort of an epidemiological or public health standpoint, since so many people are infected, huge number. Um, and I think just from some of our data in 2020, COVID was like the third highest cause of mortality in our country, you know, after heart disease and cancer. So that it's huge. You know, again, most people recover, but it's, it's because so many people can get infected. It, it's a huge health issue because so many people get sick and, and so many people pass. And then since it's so contagious, also has really, you know, catastrophic ramifications for our economy too and people's jobs. So based on that COVID's impact on how we deliver care. Can you tell us some of the resources you've used like telemedicine, virtual care, any other type of technology you've used? One of the largest ones is telemedicine and which is a great point. I think COVID is is so contagious and certainly I think touch and seeing patients face to face is important. 
but uh, of course we don't want unnecessary exposures and, and for COVID to spread. And so the use of like the internet and cameras and phones and apps has been instrumental in COVID. So actually, at least at Mary Freebed, we've been doing a lot with virtual visits with families when they're in their contagious period or when they go home and have, and they're still contagious, they can still have therapy virtually. I think what we're hoping as physicians and, and, and hospital providers too is that we can still retain some of these payment structures for telehealth because it is very efficient and a lot of people don't go to the gym and don't go to the doctor's office due to lack of transportation so we can kind of remove that barrier I think that will be great not just for COVID but for all of care I think you know the reality is unfortunately that there's probably some some small level of fraud which is why um, you know, the insurance companies and Medicare is not super ready to pay for all of telemedicine, but as long as there's accountability, I do think it'll be great for the healthcare system and our patients ultimately. I just want to kind of piggyback on that too, because we use a care transitions model to follow some patients leave Mary Freebed. And that's one avenue we've been doing is we've been trying to use more virtual calls for these patients just to check in, make sure they're okay, um, to be able to connect them back with, with Mary Freebed if there's questions. So Hopefully, as you said, we continue to be able to use those resources with the payers as we move forward because I think there's definitely value in continuing to see these patients. It's one thing to call them on the phone. It's another to actually see them physically in their home to see how they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Great point. So, Dr. Wong, you touched on in the very beginning, we kind of got talking a lot about COVID today, but you talked about some of the other programs that you are involved in, organ transplant, all kinds of things. Can you tell us a little bit more about about some of your other roles and programs that you're overseeing here at Mary Free Bed? You know, I think certainly one of the most challenging is organ transplants. And so we have a lot of those in our medically complex program. Uh, some even arrive on ventilators. You know, for those patients, we basically try to get them home. Transplant teams usually actually want to try to keep them out of subacute or nursing homes if possible. Uh, usually due to uh, the complexity of their medications and um, level of, of being immunocompromised and such. And so we have that. We also do have a ventilator program. A lot of them are uh, new quadriplegic patients, but some aren't. Some are, are transplant, lung transplant can- candidates or severe pulmonary fibrosis or COPD. And so we have those patients. And there's there's really nothing, of, I don't want to say, there's nothing wrong with nursing homes or long-term skilled care, but if we can get the patient home, that's always our goal and with family involvement. And so we do have event training program where we, uh, and it is very difficult if you can imagine, they're usually in ICUs, not at home with mom and dad or their, their uh, spouses or their kids. And so we do try to uh, bring patients here. We try to get them on a ventilator if they can't. Uh, we'll train the families to to bring them home with ventilators. And uh, we do have a subacute unit here, which I'm involved in. And so that's sort of one of my interests, too, in uh, transitioning people between acute, subacute, you know, LTAC and home. So, You know, something you hit on earlier um, when we first started talking was during patient transfers, critical information gets lost. So you're, we're taking this highly complex patients, right? People with organ transplants are on ventilators. What interaction are you having with the specialty physicians, acute care physicians, and what are some mechanisms you've put in place here at Mary Freight Bed to help eliminate some of those errors from occurring in the transitions of care? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a lot of it is technology, actually. So we were just switching to Epic inpatient here, and our major feeder hospitals use Epic also, and so that makes it a little bit more seamless. So we have uh, records to all their records. Nowadays, uh, for those who aren't in the hospital, every hospital has its own texting app. And so I think that's really helpful to be able to uh, text the specialists. I mean, phone call is great and a page is great, but, you know, someone's in the OR or something. 
Uh, and if sometimes it's not in writing, then it's harder to kind of communicate. But sometimes I just I just need a two second answer about you know someone's lab value. So I think technology with our, our EMR, in addition to uh, being able to text, has been super helpful. Uh, and also, at least at probably most acute rehab, but Mary Friedman in particular, we our physiatrists are heavily involved in the uh, acute medical side prior to coming, and. Oh, we keep keep adding people, but we probably have almost 30 or 40 nurses, and in the you know long term, five to 10 uh, advanced practice providers and and physicians, and so they are instrumental also because they help prep the patient for acute rehab, and they give me a heads up before someone comes, and they actually ask me how they're doing after they arrive. And so we have kind of another warm body to help with that handoff to see how they're doing. And they help with connecting with the family too. So they know that, hey, look, they didn't just drop us off here at Acute Rehab Mary Free Bed, but they're still following us, even to home. And so I think that kind of personal touch and uh, whether that be a nurse or physician is great for the families and, and uh, extra level of comfort. That's kind of that seamless team you were speaking of. At, at the beginning, how we're all working together. And I think that's great. Anytime you can engage the care provider from acute care and start rehab interventions earlier, I think the the faster the patient's going to recover. That's just my personal non-medical, non-physician opinion, Dr. Wong. So you can you can deny that. But I often see the benefit of, of that team being involved sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, and that alluded to what we talked about before about one of the primary barriers is psychosocial and really motivation for rehab. So I think if patients trust us and, and, and believe in us, they believe in themselves and the families and really that probably decreases length of stay probably about 15% if you did a study, maybe more. And, and certainly keeps them out of the hospital because then uh, the big thing is COPD and CHF and being able to monitor that and being educated in that. So you get the antibiotics or increase the Lasix before they're back in the emergency room. Janice and Sherry, do you have anything else um, from Dr. Wong? You know, Dr. Wong, it, you speak to, like Joyelle said, too, it's the big thing, the psychosocial, keeping the family and the patients engaged through the continuum because, you know, it, it, following up with patients when they leave Mary Freebed, you know, that's really important. So the patients know that even though they're, they leave, they're done, they're no longer here, the, the team is still caring for them. Yeah, yeah, and then that's where sometimes telehealth is super important and helpful because we do get patients from around the state and sometimes from around the country, but we can still do virtual visits and have the face-to-face with the doctor or a therapist. Not only helps them emotionally, but also clinically. Thank you so much, Dr. Wong, for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. A couple things that I'm picking up on as you talk. One, you're so passionate about what you do and you just care for people. And I'm hearing you talk about the ways that the pandemic changed how we operate and how we deliver care. But something that you really touched on is the heart of what we do here at Mary Free Bed, and that's to restore hope and freedom. And that really hasn't changed during the pandemic. And and you, with your leadership and our clinical teams, have really found the way to continue to restore that hope and freedom. And we just appreciate you so much. Throughout this podcast series, we're going to have many more special guests, just like Dr. Wong, talking about critical topics, um, things that are happening in our industry and any trends that are going on. If you'd like more information um, about today's podcast, you can email us at advisorygroup at maryfreebed.com. Until next time, be well, be passionate about rehab and be advised.